One of history's unsolved mysteries is how best to govern people. No nation has ever really solved this mystery. Some employ the dictatorial rule of a few power brokers who operate under the direction of a dictator. That's the best way to govern people, they say. Other nations use religion to govern. Strict religious behavior is imposed on everyone in order to encourage societal cohesion and stability. And then there's nations such as ours that promote a system of government in which the people rule themselves by means of representative government. We depend on the rule of law. Laws enacted by the people and enforced by persons the people put in office and have the power to remove from office. But across the long stretches of human history, people have believed that every nation had to be governed by a king. That's really the longest stretch. This idea of democracy in our Western world is fairly new on the scene. But for many, many generations, people believed that you had to have a king. Kings and kingdoms differed widely as far as outcomes in this long experiment of governance, but the system of rule by kings could never figure something out. They could never figure out how to juggle three balls. To keep them moving through the air, power, justice, and loving kindness or mercy. There were weak kings who could get little done and they could not defend their realm. They didn't have power. There were powerful kings who abused their subjects and were guilty of gross systemic injustice. Then we could think probably the ultimate was the Roman Empire, ruled by an emperor, a king of kings, so to speak. For long stretches of time, the emperor of Rome was terrifyingly powerful. And the Romans prided themselves in governing justly by the rule of codified law. So as powerful as the emperor was, yet there was law. It was quite a system. But everyone knew this. Roman emperors and their kings under them did not rule by loving kindness. Wives were nearly chattel. Concubines and children had utterly no rights. Tools were seen, or slaves were seen as breathing tools. And taxes were imposed with no mercy. Rome's enemies, if they weren't slaughtered on the field of battle or tortured in prison, they were strong-armed into submission. History really stands in silent judgment against the rule of kings. Not one mastered the will or capacity to keep those three juggled. Power, justice, and loving kindness. And that is why we have come here today to sing. 
we sing for joy to the Lord who reveals that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that we are His rescued subjects and as citizens of another country, as inheritors of the eternal city. We celebrate the truth that we are truly and actively governed by a perfect heavenly King. And our God is the holy King of kings, reigns perfectly and perfectly juggles in the best sense of the term, power, justice, and loving kindness. We are ruled by this King as His people. And in this we rejoice. The 99th Psalm is found in a grouping of Psalms that start with Psalm 93. We see it also connecting then to Psalm 97 and here in 99. They all start with the same statement. The Lord reigns. And so they're grouped together here in this section of the Psalter to speak of the reign of the great King, our Lord. We notice here as we move into Psalm 99, first of all, that our holy King reigns supremely over all. Verse 1 of Psalm 99, The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. Notice that phrase there at the end of verse 3. Holy is He. And mark then its repetition in verse 5. At the end of verse 5, holy is He. And then at the end of verse 9, for the Lord our God is holy. This marking out the three stanzas, so to speak, of the hymn, with the third stanza, stanza twice as long and celebrating this one who reigns, our sovereign Lord. The Lord reigns. Let's think on that for a moment. The word translated reign here, if there was any confusion on our part, does that mean that he's the king? Uh, it's really the verbal form in the Hebrew, the verbal form of the noun. So we don't have an English word like this, but you could translate it, the Lord kings, if that was a verb. And his kingly rule is here announced for all the earth to hear. There's only one appropriate response to this fact. The Lord reigns. You see the next phrase, let the peoples tremble. This is a trembling that rightly evaluates God's power and his authority. You remember Queen Esther? She said, if I, if I approach the king, the king of Babylon, if I just annoy him, he'll take my life immediately with no consequences. That's the power that he has. And she trembled to walk into that throne room uninvited because he had that kind of power. How much more is it appropriate to tremble before the throne the all-powerful King of Kings. And you notice here that it is a trembling of the peoples, the plural. Not just Israel, but all people everywhere are to tremble, for the Lord does reign. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, so let the earth quake. Earth there probably meaning the people of earth, but maybe perhaps the physical order itself, that nature itself would quake before the power of this one who reigns. And he sits enthroned upon the cherubim. What on earth does that mean? What is that talking about? 
Christians, your sanctification, your growth as a believer depends in part upon understanding the Old Testament. Your sanctification depends, on some degree, knowing how God provided for Israel and how He revealed Himself to Israel. People today, and many in our setting, say essentially, why do I need to know about Old Testament Israel? I am united to Christ, who is the substance of the shadow that was the Old Covenant. Those things are past. Thank God we have a glorious new day, and indeed we do. But let me ask you this. How do you know Christ is the substance of the shadow and the fulfillment of the old covenant if you don't know what that shadow was or what that old covenant prophesied? We must know the Old Testament. We cannot set it on a shelf and say, that's past history, it doesn't apply to me. It is the shadow of the substance. It is the promise that is fulfilled in Christ. And so the better we know it, the better we understand the substance. It's important then that we understand, for instance, that God elected Israel as his own, that he called Abraham by faith to his plan of salvation. It's important that we understand, as we read this morning, of Israel's exodus from Egypt and how God delivered them, that we understand the tabernacle and its structure on some level, the holy of holies, that inner sanctum where was the golden ark of the covenant, this this box covered in gold, and on that box was what? These two angels with their wings spread, and then the presence of God in this pillar of cloud shrouding on some level the glory of God's presence coming down upon this tabernacle and then into that holy of holies hovering over those wings the glowing glory of the presence of God with his people on earth. That place, those overshadowing wings of the angels, the cherubim, on that top of that ark, were, in a sense, the throne of God. That place, that ark, then being, as one has called it, the footstool of God, or the fulcrum of the universe. The very place where the presence of God hovered there, in that inner sanctum with His people. We must know of this. And if you want to think through more carefully the cherubim, Ezekiel chapter 1. Read it this afternoon. Ezekiel chapter 1. We need to know about Jerusalem. We need to know the process of coming out of Egypt and across the Jordan River into the Promised Land and that through centuries of time, the Israelites eventually located Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and Solomon's Temple there, God establishing the Davidic throne in that place. All of this is essential for us to know. We may not pass a theology test on these matters, but they are crucial to our sanctification as followers of Christ, for He is the Son of David to rule on this throne. Verse 2, 
The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Again, not just over his. The ancient gods were believed to rule over some people, and they were carefully assigned their locations. You're the God over this space. This is the God over this space. But this says that the Lord is great in Zion, a specific place, over all the peoples, over all of the earth. It's a provocative statement in its day and in ours in a different way. Let them then, verse 3, praise your great and awesome name, for holy is he. Holy, like nothing else, distinct, separate. As new covenant believers in Christ, we've become very accustomed to praising God. Let's stop and consider how stunning this call to praise really is. In verse 1, what do we see? The world trembling. The earth quaking before the king's holy presence. And now the psalmist calls us to praise the king. We encounter right here, right at this place, you have it in front of you in the text, we have right at this place the wonder of our salvation. On one hand, deep, heartfelt sense of awe and holy fear of God that converts, on the other hand, into a fervent desire to praise His name and rejoice in His presence. Do we recognize believers? Unbelievers don't get that. They don't have that experience. The unbeliever never tastes the sweet admixture of these two responses. Unbelievers can only respond to God's reign in one of three ways. The first is terror that wants to run away from God. The second is animosity that wants to revolt against Him. And the third is some dull incapacity to really feel anything toward God at all. Anything redeeming. It's just basic disinterest. They're they're, they're dead, senseless to it. Rebelling against it. Or running in terror. That's all they know. Think of it. United by faith to Christ, we have the unique joy of knowing that glorious admixture of deep felt fear in the sense of reverence that is then turned into a deep desire to praise to rejoice in the greatness of our king when deeply seated fear of god reign god's reign produces joyous songs of praise to god it is then and there that we taste eternal life And when we stand before our Savior someday in eternity, our reverent fear will go which direction? It will only go up. We will fear Him more than we even have the capacity to understand right now. And we will praise Him more than we have the capacity to do right now. Right here, we are touching the wonder of our salvation. The fear of God, understanding it, and responding to it in praise is your spirit alive to the infinite power and the sovereign reign of the lord and does this thought generate reverent fear that breaks forth in loud songs of praise that is the question before us well how many kings in history proved weak 
all of them eventually. I don't think there were too many kings that given the opportunity would not have wanted to rule over a larger realm. And once they tasted the larger realm, they'd want to rule over a little larger realm and a little larger and to then rule over the earth. Isn't that the point of being the ultimate king? Not one of them has ever accomplished it. But the Lord reigns over all the peoples with undiminished power. The nations may rage against him, but his kingdom is an eternal kingdom and no one will ever depose him. This is declared in the first three verses. We move then secondly to the second stanza. Our holy king deals justly with his people. Verse 4. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. We notice again, verse 3, holy is he, holy is he down there in verse 5. But notice the themes of this section. You see there, beginning in verse 4 and down through verse 5, we see justice, equity, justice, righteousness. It's clearly the theme of this section. As we think on verse 4, how many kings display might, but not justice? For how many kingdoms is the miscarriage of justice simply a way of life? For so many kings and rulers, power is used as a tool by which to oppress people. Not our God. Our Lord unites, as one has put it so well, so simply, but so rightly, He unites might and right. The Lord's power does not serve selfish ambition. He does, but does serve justice and truth. God administers justice by revealing His law, by writing that law upon the conscience of man, in the end standing as the perfect, uncorruptible judge of all the earth. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every knee will bow to Him. And on that day, there will be no injustice that breaks down into two ways we will pay the full penalty of all of our sins the sins we committed the sins of our omission and the sins that we never knew we committed or omitted we had no idea that we were walking in sin. There will be no injustice. We will pay the full eternal penalty of all of it. Or, we will lay claim to the blood of Jesus Christ, the greater Son of David, who paid the full penalty of our sins on the cross. There will be no injustice. All sin paid for by you or by Christ how will you enter eternity Spurgeon comments on this these verses the annals of most human governments have been written in the tears of the downtrodden and the curses of the oppressed the chronicles of the Lord's kingdom are of another sort Truth shines in each line, goodness in every syllable, and justice in every letter. But there's that matter of juggling that third ball. If, 
if you can juggle three balls, I have more power to you. I've tried it and decided not going there. Uh, I, it's going to take me way too long to get it right. But you see people that can do this, and it's like they almost in their sleep. They just, it's, it's, it's like this system that's just beautiful, that one ball is always in the air, and they just keep moving it around in perfect balance. It's, a, it's an inferior illustration of how the Lord operates, but it's that third ball to have absolute power, to rule in justice, but to bring to that equation the beautiful admixture of, of loving kindness. It's just unheard of. It's undoable by man, but not by our Lord. Our holy king relates intimately with his people. We, we find in verse 6, Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statue that he gave them. Don't miss this. As, as we read through the Psalms on our, in our personal lives, we can just read right past this so quickly. Yeah, I remember Moses, I remember Aaron, I remember Samuel. What on earth are Moses, Aaron, and Samuel doing here? This is, this is unbelievable beauty. We are talking about the exalted king who rules with absolute power and perfect justice. Now we're talking about these dudes. They're just men. Just normal people. And this God is talking to them. They are talking to Him. They call upon His name, it says. They are remembered as leaders of Israel who interceded in behalf of God's people. They called upon Him in prayer. He answered them, which is a stunning reality. In His power, God could crush Israel. In His justice, we would expect Him to do just that, for she deserved it. But what we read in this word of intimate is, is a word of intimate, merciful, loving kindness. He answered them. That's the phrase here. He answered them. They came before the king of the universe. They pleaded in behalf of the sinful people of Israel, and God heard their cry. In His holiness, He answered them from the cloudy pillar. That is, He gave counsel and direction to these leaders. Again, that pillar shielding His glory, His very presence with Israel. He spoke to these mere men. And it seems the psalmist is so struck with God's loving kindness, he just got to do a second round here beginning in verse 8. Oh Lord, our God, You answered them. You were a forgiving God to them. Believer, may we never get over the wonder of God's forgiving grace. His loving kindness is extended not to perfect citizens of His kingdom. His loving kindness is extended to sinners. Like every one of us. What a mercy. They called upon God in prayer. He answered them and He forgave them. His loving kindness, forgiving grace is extended to us who break His law, who spurn His calling, and who disregard His honor. To those people, 
God extends forgiveness. This great king says, your sins are washed away. I I wonder where you are in your relationship with God. Do you know the joy of sins forgiven? Do you have a sense of the wonder of that, of the joy of it? To receive that forgiveness from the Lord, you must come to Him on His terms. It's not something that we're just being informed about. You are a forgiven person. There is a forgiveness that is given by this King, but it is one we must approach. We must come to Him on His terms. And our eternal destiny indeed rests upon how we approach Him. But there is, with God, forgiveness. It matters not where you have been, what you have done, how you have spurned His name, what disaster you have caused. He is the source of forgiveness. He wipes clean the slate of our wrong. And He can do that justly because Jesus Christ paid that penalty for sinners. Now, as soon as we hear forgiveness, what are we tempted to do? In our sinfulness, we hear forgiveness. We say, well, then everything's well. There's nothing more to worry about. I can just live how I want because I'm forgiven. Notice the next phrase of verse 8. But he's an avenger of their wrongdoings. He's an avenger of the wrongdoing of those who are forgiven. So let us not get the sense that all of a sudden, locking into loving kindness, God forgot about justice. He doesn't do that. He's not that kind of a king, and we wouldn't want that kind of a king. He was an avenger of their wrongdoing. That is, God extended forgiveness to His people Israel, but He did not overlook their sin. He's a forgiving God. We need never despair. That's 8a. God is a just God. We must never presume. That is 8b. God misses nothing ever. And His truth, this truth, should sober us. And yet, we come singing. We rejoice to witness in Israel's history that God mercifully extends His loving kindness to sinners. And so the psalm fittingly ends with an exhortation to praise His name in verse 9. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. We think of this holy mountain. It's, it's an amazing story. And here's where I say, you need to know the Old Testament for your own sanctification as a Christian. But I wouldn't say, secondly, why would you want not to know that story? It's an amazing story of centuries of time stitched together as God works His salvation plan. And when we see the mountain, the Mount Zion, where there is the worship of the Lord in His holy temple, we hear the story of the deliverance from Egypt, of the wilderness journeys. We hear of the crossing of the Jordan River, and then Israel in the land for generation after generation after generation, seeking the site where God prophesied He would place His name. Where is it? They don't know. 
But in time, through the work of King David, ultimately they find Jerusalem. And there they establish the temple on Mount Zion. And there, through the promises of God to David and to his descendants, there will be one who rules here forever. We find then the third refrain ending where the first two do with the holiness of the Lord. That is, He is a God of power. He is a God of justice. He is a God of loving kindness. And yet, He's not reducible to any one of those three. The psalmist celebrates these virtues. It's not one over the other. They're all bound up together in what? In His holiness. His otherness, His distinctness, His greatness, His purity. Holiness is the Lord's distinctiveness over all else. There is indeed no king like our king. And if we begin to comprehend this reality, the response is a changed life that does not remain dull to the greatness of the Lord, but celebrates that truth, rejoices in that truth. It is a response that refuses to be resistant to this king. Dull to this king. Terrified by this king. It is a response that sings praises to him with glad heart because he has heard our cry of forgiveness. It's a life that rejoices that Christ is our propitiation, that He is our mercy seat, that He is the one who stands between us and the power and greatness and justice of God and with His loving kindness sheds His blood to be interposed between us and the Lord. It is a life that rejoices that we serve the one King in the history of the universe who has perfectly mastered this balance of power, justice, and loving kindness. Soon, the Antichrist will exert unprecedented power as the last King on earth, bent on destroying all that is good. But we serve a risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ whose power is greater, who will rule justly, and whose tender mercies will never cease. Who will destroy this Antichrist and all for which he stands. And the experiment of that means of governance over people will be forever gone. And the establishment here on Zion of this kingdom that will never fade. And so we understand in this sense the declaration, the Lord reigns. Spurgeon put it, this might strike you strangely, I think he's right on. It arrested my thoughts. The Lord reigns, he said, is one of the most joyous utterances which ever leaped from mortal lip. The Lord reigns. Do you see it that way? Is there in your heart this admixture of deep reverential awe that generates in your soul and fuels a desire to praise His name? I may speak to some this morning. You say, I'm dull. 
I, I, I'm not excited about praising the name of the Lord. I'm dealing with this or that, or I'm just in the middle of doubt and not certain. And I just I don't find deep within me the desire to rejoice in His presence this way. Come to Him. Don't run from Him. Keep coming and knowing that what is wrong is not that He's a dull king. Not that He lacks power or justice or loving kindness. It's what, it's what is deep within our own soul that is the blockage. Keep coming to Him. Keep approaching Him. Seek Him in prayer. Sing with the saints in the church. Seek to find in Him the beauty that is His, this King. One of the most joyous utterances which ever leaped from mortal lip. The Lord reigns. Could you say it with me? Let's just say it in unison. The Lord reigns. Father, we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of the ages, the one who has come to fulfill the prophetic promises to David. We praise you for the fact that we have life in his name. And Lord, I pray that it would bring joy to our soul to know that you reign. You are a king to be feared above all kings. And yet you have put deep within our heart a sense that that fear and that reverence is a source of great delight and hope in our soul. For any who do not have that hope, I pray that you draw them to the work that Christ has done to provide the forgiveness that allows us to so rejoice. For those that know you and find such great joy in celebrating your kingship, may we proclaim your name and say in a world that is living against Christ's purposes that he reigns, that he will reign, that he will reign forever. I pray that you would teach us to proclaim your truth and help us this Lord's Day as we gather in homes. For those that are able to do so, I pray that we would talk through the application of this great text and this joyous truth that Jesus reigns. We praise you for this revelation and pray that you would deepen and build our faith to trust it in such a way that it changes our lives. Continue to deepen us that way, we pray, and we rejoice again that you reign. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your justice. We thank you for your loving kindness. Lord, without it, your power and justice would do nothing but terrify. But we thank you for that kind sacrifice of our Savior that draws us close and allows us to call upon your name. May we do so, and may we rejoice in praise. Through Christ we pray. Amen.